On October 26, 1991, Kirby Puckett hit one of the biggest home runs in baseball history. It was Game 6 of the World Series, and with his Minnesota Twins trailing the Atlanta Braves three games to two and facing elimination, the future Hall of Famer stepped up to the plate in the bottom of the 11th with the game tied at three runs apiece. He smashed the ball over the left center field wall, winning the game for the Twins and changing the trajectory of the series, forcing a Game 7 that Minnesota ultimately won. Even Jack Buck's We'll See You Tomorrow Night call was a big moment unto itself. But lurking behind the scenes was an odd and rather obscure conspiracy theory involving the conditions inside the Metrodome, which was the home field for the Twins. So in this episode, I employ the help of friends and strangers alike to see if we can get to the bottom of this, or at least learn something new. That's next after this plug. This episode of Obscure Ball is brought to you by Alexander's Wood Emporium. It's a small wood shop based in Nashville, Tennessee, and they make wood projects to fit your needs such as custom signs, coasters, and furniture pieces. They even made this really cool small league production sign, which if you check out the Obscure Ball Instagram page, I've got a picture of it there. The website is alexanderswoodemporium.com. You can also contact them at alexanderswoodemporium at gmail.com for inquiries. Now, onto this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called Home Field Advantage. So this story begins in 1987. It was a year that two important things related to this story happened. One thing that happened was that the Minnesota Twins won the World Series. They beat the St. Louis Cardinals in seven games. That's a big thing, and it comes up a few times here. The other thing that happened was that the eccentric manager for the Texas Rangers conducted an impromptu science experiment. That thing is perhaps a bit more innocuous. It was Bobby Valentine's third season as the manager of the Rangers. His team was facing off against the Twins in their newish stadium called the Metrodome. Before one of the games, Valentine took a strip of white tape and placed it on a large circular air vent behind home plate. His plan was simple. He was just going to keep an eye on it during the game. But his experiment was interrupted when a Twins coach came by and ripped off the piece of paper. Weird, right? So the next day, Valentine again tries to put a piece of tape on the vent, but this time, an umpire ripped it down. When recalling these events years later in an interview with the Star Tribune, Valentine said that he was paranoid at the time. He seemed to believe something sinister was afoot. Now on the surface, it's easy to write off Bobby Valentine. I mean, this is the same Bobby Valentine who once disguised himself with a fake mustache and sunglasses in the dugout after being ejected from a game. But as events unfolded over the years, he may have been proven right. Let me explain. For years, there had been these vague rumors that the Minnesota Twins tried to manipulate the conditions of the Metrodome in order to give themselves a competitive edge. For instance, while he was managing the Rangers, Valentine said that his players often complained that the air vents in the outfield would be turned on while his team was up to bat, presumably to help knock down fly balls, and conversely, that the vents behind home plate would be turned on while the Twins were hitting, to help blow the ball further. And that's it. That's the conspiracy theory. It helps explain why Valentine was putting pieces of tape on air vents. He wanted to see which way the tape blew. When I first heard about this, I decided to investigate, at least to the extent that I know how to do investigations. 
Now, being new to conspiracy theories, I figured I needed some help before I just dove into this thing head first. So I reached out to my friend and collaborator, Renee Pogue, the producer and co-host of The Conspiracy Podcast, which explores true crime and conspiracies. Among many concerns I had, I wasn't quite sure where the outcome of baseball games fell on the Richter scale of conspiracies. Basically, when I think of a conspiracy theory, it is sort of an alternate explanation for either a specific scenario or an ongoing event. Okay, so far so good. We're trying to figure out why the ventilation system in the Metrodome appears to have possibly helped the Twins win important games. Of course, it's totally plausible that the Twins have simply had good teams over the years, and like most everyone else, benefit from some type of home field advantage. In fact, that's the more likely scenario. But the alternate explanation would be that someone behind the scenes was pulling the strings. You typically need a cabal of shady elite Rockefellers, Bilderberg Group. If you're David Icke, then you want to throw some reptilians in there. Maybe <laughs> maybe uh, the royal family is responsible somehow. But it's got to be a shady cabal of elites, just people who are controlling things behind the scenes. Even if they aren't elites, if someone or a group of people was in fact manipulating the vents, that qualifies as a conspiracy theory, I think. But even still, compared to something like the quote-unquote fake moon landing or JFK assassination, the outcome of a baseball game seems pretty insignificant. Those are the best kind, I will say, is when you find out some event that there's no possible way people can mess with this, and then there's like some underlying creepy scheme. Like that to me is more exciting than reading about somebody pretending that a major event happened completely different than everybody knows it did. So there's that. Renee also offered some words of wisdom for an aspiring conspiracy theorist such as myself. I think it's important to approach it the way you would any type of research, which is to look for a multitude of sources, some which support the argument, some which do not support the argument, and those that are kind of in the middle. Because some conspiracy theories do have a kernel of truth in them. That kernel of truth. That's what we're after here. So in pursuit of that kernel of truth, I figured the next logical step would be to visit the scene of the alleged crime. The Metro Dome, known also simply as the Dome. Problem is, I've never actually been there. And since it was demolished in dramatic fashion in 2014, that's now impossible to do. I do know someone who has been there, though. Number one best baseball game I ever went to, 2004. It was the day after the trade deadline, and the Twins just traded Doug McAvich across the dugouts to the Red Sox. And it was Pedro Martinez versus Johan Santana. It was too small to be Cookie Cutter Stadium, so when they transitioned from football to baseball, unlike in Cincinnati and in San Francisco, they had to like fold up seats up against the outfield for it to actually work at all. Whereas all the other ones, like, they just there was like a giant ring around what was like a football and baseball diamond. That's my friend and sports journalist Ian Foster. These days, Ian mostly covers Major League Soccer, providing analytics and game highlights, but he's also an avid Twins fan and former Minnesotan and was able to provide some first-hand knowledge of just how unique the Metro Dome really was. Just as some quick background, the Twins played in the Dome from 1982 until 2009 and shared the stadium with the Minnesota Vikings. From 1961 until 81, 
both teams played at Metropolitan Stadium. The Met, as it was known, was considered more of a baseball stadium, so in the late 70s, plans were made to build an indoor arena for the Vikings. That plan ultimately included the Twins, and by 1982, both teams signed a 30-year lease to play in the newly built Metrodome. Where the Met was considered a baseball stadium that sometimes had football games on Sundays, the Dome was pretty much the opposite. And like Ian said, it was smaller than other stadiums, so converting it from a football field to a baseball diamond just made it look weird. If you haven't seen it, Google it or whatever, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The artificial turf, the tarp, that literal giant bag in right field, the foul poles that weren't even foul poles, but more like pieces of fabric that just dangled from the ceiling, which is another weird quirk. This is an indoor stadium we're talking about. The most visceral thing I remember about going to the to Twins games as a kid is the literal atmosphere, which is to mean when you leave the stadium and go into the stadium. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been to like a like a bubble for like indoor sports like in the winter, but like there's a there's a giant air pressure differential. So like your ears will pop when you walk out of the of the Metrodome because you're leaving a pressurized bubble. Keep that term in the back of your mind the literal atmosphere. It's important, and it comes up again later. But for now, I think it's safe to say that conspiracy theories aside, the Metrodome gave the Twins a distinct home field advantage. The white ceiling made it hard for opposing fielders to spot fly balls. The turf, for players unfamiliar with it, could prove very difficult to play on. And the crowd noise bouncing off the walls and ceiling made it harder for opposing teams to communicate. Baseball, home field matters more than I think in any other sport, with or without fans. Ian also brought up how, let's say poorly, the Twins have done in recent playoff series. As of this recording in 2020, they've lost a record-setting 18 consecutive playoff games dating back to 2004. And Ian suggests, maybe that's no coincidence. So who knows, you know, maybe this is the baseball gods' penance. We know they can be really vengeful, so... Maybe there's more to this than, than, than you and I think. The baseball gods are indeed vengeful, but at the same time, that's not exactly scientific. I needed more proof before I got on board with this conspiracy theory. And I figured that by focusing on one World Series, I thought maybe that would be a microcosm of what could have happened. 1991. Arguably the greatest World Series ever played. I was only two years old when it happened, so I don't have any personal memories of the World Series that year. But like most baseball fans, and specifically as someone who grew up watching the Braves, I always knew about the 91 World Series, but mostly through highlights and stories. It was only recently that I was inspired to actually watch the whole series when a friend and listener of this podcast suggested I do so. Hi, uh, I'm David Gunn. I have enjoyed baseball for a while. I've, I watched it a lot growing up. I played it growing up. And just recently when we've been uh, with a lack of baseball, my father and I decided to pick a random random game to watch on YouTube. Uh, we wanted to make a, a World Series Game 7. So I had my wife look up a game and pull it up uh, so that we didn't see the thumbnail and know who won or anything. They landed on Game 7 of the 91 Series. Now, the game and series itself were so unique that David and I figured, this could be a story. Maybe. Then we learned about the ventilation system in the dome. David's wife, Rita, actually tipped us off. While David was watching the game, she read up on the backstory, 
And in doing that, she stumbled across some of this stuff. Now she waited till after we watched the game. And I thought, what are those big ass circles behind home plate? Is that where the, this can't be where the players come out. That seems stupid. I don't know what that's about. And we were watching the game and it, we thought it was kind of a boring game because not a lot of action was going on. And then when we finished the game, we were talking to, talking to her and I was like, look at these circles. What are these circles behind home plate? And that's when she brought up the, the whole fan interference possibility conspiracy and then I was like no way but I did some more research into it and yeah it's a whole thing. Of course those big things behind home plate were in fact the fans that blew out air and as we've alluded to might have been used to help the twins. They also had some vents situated beyond the outfield stands which remember might also have been used to blow air in when opposing teams were up to bat. But in 1991 hardly anyone was worried about that. Coming into the Fall Classic that year, the big backstory was how both the Twins and Braves finished last in their respective leagues the year prior and had both catapulted to a league pennant. As far as home field advantage was concerned, a lot was made about the things I already mentioned, like the white ceiling, the turf, and the crowd noise. But the ventilation system? As best I can tell, no one from the Braves suspected a thing. Unless maybe Bobby Valentine had given them a heads up or something. Once the series started... It was one for the books. It began on October 19th and lasted through the 27th. The Twins won games 1 and 2 at the Dome. The Braves won games 3, 4, and 5 in Atlanta. And the Twins took game 6 and the decisive game 7. With the exception of a lopsided 14-5 win for the Braves in game 5, every game was really close. Five of the games were decided by one run or less. Four of those were won via a walk-off and three of those were decided in extra innings. Given how well each team played that season, maybe that's not that big of a surprise. But it's still kind of eerie just how evenly matched these two teams were. If you were to sit back in 91 and just look at teams' records, you would say that these two teams would be in the World Series. And on paper, it sounded like a great matchup because both teams had very similar records. Only one game apart separated them. In the series, both teams had eight home runs, four triples, and their batting averages were almost identical. And, and if you look at all other you know, on-base percentage and walks and that sort of stuff, a lot of those stats were very close too. With the teams seeming to match each other pitch for pitch, hit for hit, and run for run, you could, for the sake of argument, make the case that the ventilation system could have been the deciding factor. Plus. Those aren't the only statistical oddities. Maybe you've already picked up on this, but the home team won every single game of the series. Without looking through past records, I figured that really wasn't all that weird. I mean, home field advantage, right? Turns out, it's only happened three times. Ever. 87, 91, and 2001. Interestingly... 87 and 91 were both the twins and they were in the Metrodome. So, I mean, could the fly balls have been assisted by that? I don't know, but I mean, it's, it's, if it's only, if it's only happened three times in the history of baseball, like it kind of, it kind of seems a little suspect. Think about that. Since the first ever world series in 1903, the home team has lost at least once every year, aside from the three David just mentioned and two of those series were played in the Metrodome, where the Twins had a lot of control over the conditions. Like David said, it's a bit suspect. 
but that fact alone still doesn't prove anyone cheated. Here's David again. And so I thought it would be interesting to see if if the if the ventilation system was used more so in high pressure situations. And what I found is in 87, the Twins won 70% of their home games and they only won 36% of their away games. Uh, and in 91, those numbers were 63 at home and 54% they won away. Those numbers aren't crazy. If you look at past championship winners, the numbers are similar to that. So, I mean, it doesn't necessarily indicate that the fans were being used for that, but it raises an eyebrow for sure. Okay, one thing about regular season baseball is that each team plays 162 games, 81 of them at home. A long-standing baseball philosophy has been that you play to win each series, not necessarily each game. Meaning that, in theory, individual games are less important in baseball than, say, football, where one or two regular season games can make or break a whole season. That is, until you get to the playoffs. Then every game, every inning, and every at-bat becomes magnified. So the stakes are higher. But then I get to the postseason, where things got a little bit more interesting. During the postseason of 91, the Twins had six home games. And I didn't realize this was, this was, I didn't know when they started doing the AL and NLDS games. I didn't know that 91 was before they did that, so the playoffs were much shorter. But yeah, so they had six home games, and... The fly balls and home runs were a little less, but of the six games that they played, three had either a deep fly ball that scored a run or a home run in the eighth inning or later. Two of those three were a home run, and one of those home runs was in game six of the World Series, which I'm sure you've watched. I have, obviously. For the Twins, it was the biggest home run in franchise history, and it's probably on up there in baseball history, too. But knowing what we know about the ventilation system and the allegations of possible cheating, could that home run have been aided by the fans? I talked to an eyewitness with a first-hand account of the incident. That's after the break. Scattershot Symphony. The music of Peter Link. Coming at you now. A podcast presented by Watchfire Music. An intense listening experience of a lifetime of composition. By million-selling producer, composer, and two-time Tony nominee, Peter Link. Coming soon. Wherever you get your podcasts. A scattershot of pop. Rock. R&B. Reggae. Gospel. Musical theater. Inspirational. 90% music. Check it out. So you may recall that Rene told me to find that kernel of truth. Turns out, it really wasn't all that hard to find. I found an old newspaper article from 2003 that provided just that. A guy named Dick Erickson gave an interview to the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. Now that in and of itself might seem pretty insignificant. Except for the fact that Erickson was the superintendent of the Metro Dome from 1982 until 95. What's even more significant is that during that interview, he admitted that he adjusted the ventilation system in high-pressure situations, including Puckett's Game 6 home run. David was right. They did use the vents when the game was on the line. Erickson, who has since passed away, went on to elaborate his involvement in the scheme in some detail. 
Essentially, he copped to the fact that he did turn the fans on in high-pressure situations, especially, as he told the paper, if the Twins were losing. It's worth noting that Erickson had been the superintendent of the Dome from the time it opened until he retired just over a decade later, meaning he'd have been present for both the 87 and 91 World Series. In that same article, another fellow named Virgil Ophis, who also worked for the Metro Dome, told the paper he saw Erickson turn on the system in specific scenarios. Furthermore, he confirmed that the ventilation system was blowing out for Puckett's home run. So, case closed, right? Well, not quite. First of all, Erickson claimed that the ball was hit far enough that the fans made no difference, which I actually think he could be right about. I've watched this home run several times at least, and the ball lands about six or seven rows in the left field bleachers. It's hard to imagine any fan blowing hard enough to really blow it that far. He also said that he didn't feel guilty about it, pointing out that every team has their own home field advantage. Further complicating things is that another Dome employee told the Tribune he never saw Erickson mess with events and never did it himself. He called the whole situation a bunch of hooey. And on top of all that, there's no proof that anyone from the Twins organization knew about or participated in turning on the fans. So to get a better handle of exactly what went down, I called Virgil Ophis and left him a message. Honestly, I figured that would be a dead end. But to my surprise, he called me back right before dinner one night, and we spoke for close to an hour. He didn't want his voice to be on the podcast, but he did agree to speak on the record. During our conversation, he spoke glowingly of Erickson, who hired Virgil to be part of his grounds crew, calling him a great boss. Virgil told me he first began working at Metropolitan Stadium in 1962 as a snack vendor. Erickson, who was the head of the grounds crew there as well, noticed how hard he worked and asked him to interview for a spot on the grounds crew. But first, Virgil had to take a test administered by Erickson himself. The test was a series of questions about baseball, and Virgil told me he got every question wrong, largely because he didn't really know or care all that much about baseball. Erickson hired him on the spot. The reason? He wanted a worker who wouldn't get distracted by the game. I share that story to illustrate how Erickson had a pretty creative way of thinking about things. After Virgil fondly recalled some of his memories from the Dome, like meeting Harmon Killebrew and Adrian Peterson, an interesting privilege for a person who claims not to care about sports, our conversation eventually turned to the Dome's ventilation system. Virgil confirmed to me what he told the Star Tribune in 2003. He also added some context that I think is worth sharing. He says the only reason he talked to reporters is because someone blocked his driveway with their car until he agreed to give a story. I reached out to the Star Tribune to get their perspective and never heard back. He also estimated that the fans behind home plate would have been about 30 feet away from the ball, blowing at roughly 12 miles per hour. Based on that, Virgil figures the vents had very little impact on the ball, maybe on average blowing it an extra 3 feet or so. He also pointed out that actual wind in nature impacts the ball more than an indoor ventilation system. Wrigley Field in Chicago, for instance, is notorious for its gusts of wind, as is Oracle Park in San Francisco or even Target Field where the Twins currently play. Now, there's still this uncomfortable elephant in the room, which is the fact that wind is random and indiscriminate, while a groundskeeper turning on the vents is calculated and probably should be against the rules. And it still begs the question, why even have the fans on in the first place? When I sent a follow-up email to Virgil asking him these very questions, he replied in all caps, which was kind of funny, but told me to think of the Metrodome like a big, heavy balloon. 
You may recall that Ian Foster mentioned the atmosphere inside the dome. The atmosphere. You see, unlike other indoor stadiums, the roof of the Metrodome is inflated and needs air to stay that way, and a whole lot of it. With tens of thousands of people coming and going through the doors, air is constantly flowing out of the dome, so the fans are crucial to keeping the roof up. Otherwise, as Virgil explained it, the roof would collapse and people would die. And what about turning fans on in late-inning situations? Well, in his interview with the Tribune, Erickson argued this was justifiable. You see, from his perspective, fans needed to be turned on during the ninth inning or in extra innings in case the game ended suddenly, like, say, if Kirby Puckett hit a game-winning home run. People would soon be pouring out of the stadium and taking the much-needed air with them. Still, there was some gamesmanship on the part of Erickson, and all of that is to say that, yeah, they turned the fans on in order to help the Twins. But did the air currents make any difference? Soon after the Star Tribune story was published, Dr. Ivan Marusic, a professor of fluid dynamics at the University of Minnesota, decided to run an experiment to answer that very question. Dr. Marusic was one of the first people I reached out to for this story. I'm sorry to report that he did not respond to any of my emails, so I can only rely on what the Star Tribune story from 2003 found. But here's what I do know. Armed with an air cannon and some of his students, Marusic went to the dome to test whether or not air currents could affect the movement of a baseball, with the full cooperation of Metrodome staff. According to the Tribune, he launched more than 80 baseballs from the cannon at a 50-degree angle. In doing so, he was able to simulate two different scenarios, the fans blowing out from home plate and the fans blowing in from the outfield. He found that the balls traveled about three feet further with the fans blowing out and about three feet shorter when they blew in. But is that enough to actually impact the outcome of a game? Well, it's tricky. When presented with Marusic's findings, Sandy Weisberg, the director of the statistical consulting service at the University of Minnesota, told the Tribune that it was unlikely that the mechanical fans had any impact on the outcome of the game, stipulating that they could have some impact on the movement of the ball. Furthermore, according to the Tribune, Marusic ran a second series of tests during the spring semester of 2004. This time, with no effect. So using science, you could argue it both ways. Also, I think Ian made a good point about how easy it might be to overthink a fly ball in the Metrodome, knowing now what we know about the fans. And you know, if you're if you're going into it with that in mind, you can look at like any hit and like say to yourself, oh, you know, I bet Lonnie <laughs> Walker would have caught that had it had the vents not been blowing. I think a good example of that would be game seven. You know, the one David and I watched during our respective quarantines. It's widely considered to be one of the greatest baseball games ever played. Not because of a big home run or anything like that, but because of the pitching. In a pitching duel for the ages, Jack Morris pitched 10 scoreless innings for the Twins, outlasting the Braves and fellow future Hall of Famer John Smoltz, who pitched 7 and one third innings of scoreless baseball himself. Neither team managed to score a run until the bottom of the 10th inning. That's when one more fly ball decided the outcome of a game. The Braves had turned to their bullpen and a reliever named Alejandro Pena. In the bottom of the 10th, he gave up a leadoff double to left fielder Dan Gladden, who advanced to third on a sacrifice bunt from Rookie of the Year Chuck Knobloch. That put the Braves in a bit of a tight spot. With a runner on third and only one out, pretty much any fly ball would likely spell doom. And worst of all, 
Kirby Puckett was coming up to bat. They intentionally walked him. They weren't about to trifle with his bat again. And they also intentionally walked the next batter, Kent Herbeck, in order to load the bases. Now a ground ball would give the Braves an easy force out at the plate, but a fly ball would still likely be disastrous. So with that in mind, the outfield was playing pretty shallow to defend against a possible line drive. And here's where things got even more interesting. Twins manager Tom Kelly opted to pinch hit with a backup utility player named Gene Larkin. And, well, I'll let David describe what happened. And he gets up there and hits a, hits a pop fly deep enough to get us a run in. Now, I mean, you tell me. A guy that had never played in this game, coming off of injuries, getting toward the end of his career, hits a clutch pop fly into deep left field. I mean, is it, is it possible? Sure. But could the fans have, you know, the, the ventilation system, have that played a role? I'd like to think it did. That would be the final play of any World Series game in the Metrodome, a game-winning single to clinch the third World Series title for the franchise. In their remaining years in the Dome, the Twins never advanced beyond the ALCS and moved to Target Field in 2010, an outdoor stadium with no inflatable roof or giant fans behind home plate or in the outfield. After the Vikings moved to U.S. Bank Stadium, the Dome was ultimately demolished in 2014. While it certainly had its quirks and flaws, was notoriously difficult for opposing players, and, as we've learned, was conducive to conspiracy theories, the Metrodome, like many stadiums before and after it, seems to hold a special place in the heart of hometown fans. Here's Ian Foster again. For me, it was it was a fun place to watch a game, and it had a very distinct smell, as, as indoor stadiums did. It brings, brings back good memories, and helped with, with the Twins are pretty good. As far as our investigation, David, Ian, and I never reached a solid conclusion. Which is too bad, because we're all smart as heck, and made an honest attempt at using facts and science to find an answer. But facts and science don't always matter anyway. In an increasingly post-truth society where conspiracy theories run rampant, sometimes people will just believe whatever, like 9-11 truthers, QAnon, or all those people who almost stormed Area 51. I asked Renee Pogue why this happens. I think it's definitely a lot more interesting to go down the trail of believing these very elaborate conspiracy theories. And it's very tempting to believe that you can peek behind the curtain and you are one of the people who can figure out what's really going on. Obscure Ball is produced by Small League Productions and yours truly. Music for this episode and past episodes are provided by Storyblocks. And a big thanks to David Gunn for providing extra research for this episode. Ian Foster, Renee Pogue, and Virgil Ophis all contributed as well. Previous episodes of Obscure Ball are available wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe so you'll know when a new episode is being released, which is occasionally. <laughs>